Ink and Paint wishes to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people, the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded and edited. It is a great privilege to be able to tell stories on this land, which has a tradition of storytelling stretching back over 10,000 years. We also wish to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands from all over the world where our guests record from. We pay our respects to all elders past, present and emerging, and to our First Nations listeners. Hello and welcome to Ink and Paint In Betweeners, our series of bonus episodes expanding on the story of the Disney animated classics. I'm your host, Daniel Lamon. In these bonus episodes, we're sharing history and stories related to the Disney animated classics that sit just outside of the films themselves and complement our main Ink and Paint episodes. In this episode, we're taking a moment to look at part of Disney's history that has often been unacknowledged the contribution of their female artists and employees to the development of animation. The commercial failure of Sleeping Beauty necessitated a dramatic shift in the way animated films were made, a shift that greatly affected the women at the studio. This seemed the perfect opportunity to take stock in what women had achieved in the company in their first four decades and how this transition between Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians affected their involvement for the decades to come. For this in-betweener on the women of Disney animation, I'm joined by award-winning film and animation historian, author and artist, Mindy Johnson. A leading expert on women's roles in animation and film history, Mindy frequently writes and speaks on early cinema, animation, women's history and creativity. She was recently honoured with the 2020 ASIFA Hollywood Animation Educators Forum Faculty Grant and the 2019 Academy Film Scholar Award from the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences Grant Foundation for continued research and writing on the contributions of the earliest women within our collective animated past. Her groundbreaking discoveries continue to cast light on the invisible narrative of women's presence within the first century of the motion picture industry. Her book, Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation, has become a foundational text of our understanding of the role of women at Disney. In addition to her film expertise, literary efforts and consulting, Mindy is also an award-winning playwright, songwriter, composer and contributing artist on several internationally acclaimed recordings and published compositions. Mindy, welcome to Ink and Paint. Thanks, Daniel. And I love the title. <laughs> oh, I, I thought you might. I thought you might. When I, and the funny thing was that I picked it very early on. We decided to do the podcast, and the first thing I did was you know go and try and find as many authoritative texts on Disney as I can. And the first one I find is called Ink and Paint. I thought, well, mm. I can't not buy that. <laughs> so to talk a bit more about your research, how did you come to early cinema and animation as an area of study that you wanted to pursue? Probably in the most roundabout manner possible. I'd always uh, been in love with the movies and um, spent a scary amount of time in the movie theater at one point in my life. I was also a musician. Um, I had studied and performed and worked and traveled and did a lot as a musician. Um, But I worked in television in New York and then realized I needed uh, training more grounding if I wanted to fully pursue what I wanted to do, you know, at that point, it was 
wanted to be a director. And, uh, you know, found my way doing it eventually, but I knew I needed more of a, again, a technical grounding and understanding it. So I had signed up to train at, uh, at NYU, but I got accepted. I floated out, you know, people were set telling me on that production that, um, well, there's NYU and, and USC and UCLA, and then there's AFI. And I thought, well, I better, you know, the, oh, AFI is tough to get into. It, it, I've tried for six years. And I thought, well, I better get started if it's going to take that long. Well, I got in. Literally had to pack up from New York and, and uh, flew back to the uh, Twin Cities in Minnesota, where I'm from originally, and bought a car and packed up my harp and drove out to Southern California and started at the American Film Institute. And had a few little, got through there, finished my graduate work there, which was great fun and an incredible experience. And all right, now you got to find a job. And I was actually working at Disney, but in a very, um, I was a little creative fish on corporate dry land. I was in a very corporate side of the company for whatever reason. It was a J-O-B and I uh, was there for a number of years and then, okay, I got to change my life and I quit my job and traveled to Europe for a while and, and then came back to absolutely no job, no nothing and went, all right, let's reinvent and did and ended up back at Disney and was working in animation. I found my way over into a more creative side of things and loved it, loved working with the artists. Um, you don't have a fraction of the egos that you do in live action or television. In what capacity were you working in the animation department? It was uh, some of the TV animation at the time at Disney. And then, uh, so I learned the nuts and bolts of it. And then the job ended and uh, was assigned to work in the pictures marketing division. Got a job over there which was supposed to be for a week or two, kind of as a temp job, and it lasted for about five or six years. <laughs> and oh, we wow. kind of, don't tell corporate, but we ended up flying under the radar because they didn't have headcount, but they loved what I did and loved, and I just loved it. I uh, was working on a lot of the premieres and um, did worked on the original Pirates premieres and worked with the talent and started writing there quite a bit, did a lot of the bios and production, helped with updating production notes and learned from, I had some really, a couple of really terrific mentors there. Once that sort of had to end because corporate then found out after about six years, then I ended up getting a call from the home entertainment teams in publicity. And they said, oh, we've heard senior work. Let's have you come on in. So I ended up working there for again, a number, five, six years. And I handled the global publicity for the classic animated titles. Oh, wow. Yeah, those were my babies, yeah. Was this was this around the, like the, the DVD transition into Blu-ray? Blu-ray, period? yes. Oh, wow. Yeah. Like the golden age of home entertainment for yeah. Disney. Yeah. Those, those releases are like prized possessions in my collection. Yeah, that was me. Those were my campaigns and... Worked with the regional teams all around the globe. It was wonderful, fascinating. And, to, and then for me, what I really enjoyed, and I carry it through with my research, is I love casting a light on the unsung heroes and heroines of these films that we don't get to see or we don't get to learn about. And so it was a great uh, opportunity to meet with and work with and become dear, dear friends with 
many of our great Disney legends. And then to bring to light other artists that nobody really knew about and to give them an opportunity to step into the spotlight and really showcase their talents and contributions that were equally monumental. Which is a real feature of that period in Disney home entertainment. Like I remember that being a real surprise, like when you to, 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 you know, buy one of the classic films on DVD or Blu-ray and for it to be accompanied by hours and hours of proper retrospective or archival material highlighting people who would you would never have thought would ever be given a chance in the spotlight and like, you know, enriching the narrative about this art form. No, it was great fun. And just some of the best experiences professionally and traveled quite a bit with that and and really mounted some record-breaking campaigns. Um, and after I, again, had to leave, they, the division sort of closed and, and ended, and um, so the world changed. And, but at that time, it was uh, through my work there that I began writing. And um, so as a new title would come up, I would go over to the Animation Research Library and we dig through the original artwork to find new stories and a new way to introduce these classics to new audiences, to tell the story from a different angle and a different approach that hadn't been told before. That's how the Tinkerbell book came about. Um, uh, we were re-premiering Peter Pan in London, and we found a, a man, one of the great classic mansions in the Bloomsbury district there. We is utilized for film production. So we, we rented that for about a week and we did our, we had it re-premiered in Leicester Square and then put everybody on double-decker buses and brought them back to the house. We did our press events at the house that we dressed as the darling home. Oh, wow. So then I utilized, Peter Pan has just such a volume of incredible concept art because Walt had had this film in development since the early 30s and mid-30s at least, and he had always been fascinated with the story, and it went through so many different permutations. They had to shelve it during the war and then brought it back up again. And but it, So it's a really fascinating take. And so in going through all this artwork, I then created sort of a self-guided exhibition of the production of the film through the artwork that lined the different walls of each of the rooms. So we sort of pegged them up to the walls. And so you had these beautiful Mary Blair pieces and, um, you know, uh, uh, Nine Old Men's great artistry because it's the only film that all of the Nine Old Men worked on. And you had just stunning, stunning pieces. And one of the discoveries, I walked into the Animation Research Library and the amazing teams there and said, you know, one of the researchers said, we have this folder that, we're just not sure. There are a bunch of fairies in here, and we don't know. We we think they're Tinkerbells, but we don't know. I'm like, really? So I flipped through, and there were all these permutations of, you know, different hairstyles and costumes and dresses. And I'm like, that's not Tinkerbell. But wait, there's something to this. And uh, so one of the rooms that I, I designed the exhibition to feature, and it was the evolution of Tinkerbell. And consistently, all throughout our event, each room had a different theme and tone. And uh, consistently, everyone who had gone through the house and through the exhibition kept buzzing about that room of, oh, these Tinkerbells, oh my goodness. And so I came back and was sharing photographs of the event with the teams at the ARL. And I said, you know, I think there's a book here. That 
did it. What were some of the like learning processes you had to go through in order to kind of work out how to approach telling a story like that? In the work I was doing in home entertainment, as we prepare for each film, I would do a lot of research and a lot of unearthing of materials and putting pieces together and finding talent and uh, tracking people down. And uh, so that really was foundational and, and helped kind of steep me in this, the artistry of animation, the really unique, incredible world of classic animation. And to understand the process and to understand the personalities and having worked at Disney for many years, kind of being immense, immersed in that world and having worked on each of the classic titles really helped to understand the progression of things, the challenges that each film presented. So when it came time to write this book, people thought it was a children's book. They thought it was, oh, that's charming, that's cute. <laughs> and even having to convince publishing that, no, this is a, a serious book. And they were about to launch the Tinkerbell films, or that was still being whispered. And so then New Heat came along while I was researching and writing, and then they decided, yeah, all right, we'll, we'll do this project. The, the newest challenge, I think, in this regard, on such a volume like that, and that book is still only a fraction of what it could and should be. It it was a, a big lesson in you only have so many pages to tell your story. And I'm very visual in what I do. And so a large part of telling that story is done visually in all of my books. So it was finding the material, finding the pieces, really tracking things down, connecting the dots. People had studied the world of Peter Pan upwards and downwards, but Nobody paid a lick of attention to this unique character that Walt Disney had really taken on and, and she had embodied the magic of the company. So it really was a, an interesting challenge to kind of get people on board. It was so different from what they had normally been doing or what people were expecting. Same is true with Ink and Paint. And I, I happily, that's kind of my niche. I, I want people to be surprised. I don't want to rehash things. I don't want to churn out the same stuff. It's boring to me. It's like doing eating leftovers all the time. And it took a little while to get people to understand, look, here's what I'm trying to do with this. And here's the scope of what's going to be involved. So uh, I guess now, sadly, I have a reputation of being epic in anything that I do. So <laughs> I, I can definitely sympathize because I mean, on a, on a much smaller scale, it's been a, also been an interesting, that's been a similar journey with this project. Because I mean, I could make every single episode of this hours and hours long because of how dense the, the, the both the history of each of these films are, but also the amount of analysis you can go into, but also having to convince people that I'm not just somebody who's going to sit there and talk about how much I love Disney, that there's some, like, there is something else. It's a surprise for a lot of people to realise just how dense and rich and complicated the history of Disney animation is and how much it is, it is so intrinsically linked to Walt Disney himself, but how it is also kind of a completely separate history on its own. There's a point where he leaves the story and that the story kind of has to build on its own. Absolutely. And he, a lot of people sort of giggle, oh, Disney. Well, what people don't realize is Walt had built such a unique forum, uh, certainly advancing the art form, but the collective of talent that he brought to each project. These people were cutting edge, I mean, leading edge of everything that was being done. And men and women. And, and it didn't matter your gender or your hair color or shoe size. It was your talent. 
And it, it was the first of its kind. I mean, the, the studio itself, now we have like Google, everybody builds parks and campuses. And, and Disney's was the first, one of the first campuses, really. And to take that kind of an approach to formulating your studio in a way that would be structured around a particular medium. Do you remember what the very first Disney animated classic was that you saw? Do you have a memory of what the first one was? I do. It was the first movie I saw in a movie theater. We went to this magical place. My aunt and my cousins, my aunt took my cousins and and myself, and it was this magical palace that we went to. And we got, you know, there was a waterfall and it was this magical world. And we went in and we had to buy tickets and we sat down in these seats and this magic imagery unfolded. It was Mary Poppins. Oh, my God. What? The the first film you ever saw on the big screen was Mary Poppins. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, that's like, that's like, you know, that's like the first thing you get to see is a miracle, basically. Yeah. And it was uh, with a Winnie the Pooh short and I fell in love with Christopher Robin. Then this magical film where, you know, they could be afloat on the ceiling and, you know, step into a painting and it just was magic. And now the better part is fast forward how many years later and one of my big events was for the 40th anniversary of Jungle Book or 45th anniversary, I guess. And uh, so I was knocking on the door of dear Richard Sherman and to interview him. Well, I had at that particular event, we were hosting journalists from all over the globe at the Animation Research Library to explore the artwork of the Jungle Book. And Bruce Reitherman, the son of Wooly Reitherman, one of the nine men who directed the film and helped to finish the film after Walt had passed, Bruce was there. He was the voice of Mowgli. He also did voice work on Winnie the Pooh. It was the voice of Christopher Robin. And so as I was waiting, I had my talent there, Richard and Bruce were there. And I was I was instructed, you know, we're, we're a wee bit early, but go help yourself to some breakfast before the journalists come. And here's what our day is going to be. And I happened to look over and I had to stop. I started to cry because it was such an impact on me. And I went over and I've got the sweetest picture of the two of them sitting there having breakfast. And I said, you guys are the reason why I am here. And I realized how many years prior, decades prior, dare I say, and I told them the story. I said, the first film I ever saw was Mary Poppins. And I hadn't known this that Bruce had also done. He goes, yeah, I also did, you know, the Winnie the Pooh shorts. I'm like, I was Christopher Robin. I'm like, I had such a crush on you. And the two of them. I said, you guys made me fall in love with the movies. And here, so it was the most full circle, you are right where you need to be. And there's no way you could have planned or plotted that out. It was just this beautiful kismet moment that I still treasure so richly. And, you know, to sit in the theater with Richard Sherman watching, he's a dear, dear, dear friend and, and watching Saving Mr. Banks with him and You know, he's been to my home and played on my piano and just one of the sweetest, most wonderful men. And as a musician and songwriter myself, humbly, not in, you know, totally in the shadow of that man, but we could talk, we could talk a language of music and and lyric and rhyme that you can't with too many people. The idea of these works of art 
being like the, the, being living, breathing things through the presence of the people that created them is just like I, I can't even imagine what it would be like to sit in a room with Richard Sherman. Like that would just like the the idea would be like you're someone who was there. Well, as as an historian, that's one of your keys. You're, you're always looking for your primary sources. You know the people who were in the room and those who worked on these things, and that's true. Of film history and Getting those firsthand accounts is key, and but also being able to temper that, filter it. Sometimes you have to kind of correct people about, well, no, that would have come after that film. And no, your mother wasn't an animator per se, but she did ink on things that was pretty close to animation. And you know, just to clarify, and and but at the same time, carefully correcting and and getting it formulated straight, but then also getting them to talk, getting them comfortable with telling their stories and, and sharing what they know and what their experiences are. And sometimes family members, you, we now have to work with the second and sometimes third generation. So you're hearing stories third hand. You have to do a, a little bit of sensitive correcting and <laughs> educating, but it, it, it still helps to humanize and to, to sort of bring bring their story to life. Um, and new discoveries are going on all the time. So it's shaping. That's, I think, one of the delights about Ink and Paint is that it was the other half of our collected animated experience that no one had ever explored. And I had to, you know, even in, when I pitched the idea coming out of Tinkerbell, my publisher said, well, my editor was saying, well, what's next? And I thought, well, I put together about, I don't know, eight or nine different pitch ideas. and this one kind of rose to the top because I had looked through Tinkerbell and thought, wow, I've got a page and a half or so about uh, speaking with a couple of the ladies who did the ink campaign on Tinkerbell and coming to understand how her unique color and glow was created. And everybody focuses on the men with pencils who we love. But I, it dawned on me that, wait a minute, there's quite a bit more here. They're not determining her colors and her look and her final, what we see on screen. and. So when I pitched the idea, we thought it was going to be a charming little book. And, you know, my editor said, oh, well, didn't they do a lot of, wasn't there a lot of dating and stuff like that? I said, yeah, I guess so. And all right, let's explore that too. And okay. And so we started moving ahead with it. And I got about six months into my research and I had just, I mean, sheer panic. It was so... I, I called my editor and went, um, <laughs> this is epic. And what these women did, no one has written about. Nobody understands. Nothing was done. And I can't, I'm still working to get my head around it. And I don't know how it ends. Well, that was going to be my, my next question was how well had the role, the role and contribution of women to Disney been documented at all up until that point? Like how, how much had the history book acknowledged it? Um, nothing. And I can say that quite plainly, nothing. And I love my, my dear colleagues. They're all remarkable, but they stopped as soon as it was men and, and went and went, okay, then you got the log line of then pretty girls who traced and colored. And then it went to camera and then it was on screen. And it was always about the men. Was that purely just a se- like a sexism thing? Like a, like the, the, that in terms of the previous research, their brains had just gone, well, there mustn't be anything important to look at from there onwards? Combination of of that and 
uh, the myth had been perpetuated that it was just, oh, they pulled people off the streets and it was coloring by numbers. And and typically as women, they're not going to speak up or say as much, but I have several theories on why. But history overall is recorded, preserved, written about, archived, and documented from a male perspective. Women are not present, and yet they've always been in the room. They've always been there. They've always been there firsthand. And incredible women we do not know about. So as an example, when I first started researching and I found a couple of the ladies that I started talking with and, oh, well, yeah, so-and-so might be around. We just don't even think of that because as women, we're focused on everybody else except ourselves, right? So in kind of getting them to think and, oh, see if you have some papers, see what you can find. I've been over at the archives so many times and at the ARL and, you know, let's see what you guys have. Oh, no, we don't have anything. Nope. Well, let's see what we've got. And I went into, I set up time at the archives once we got the green light on the book and God bless those people. They're amazing over there. But I will never forget one of the lead archivist's faces when he came out and I said, okay, I'll need everything on these films. Let's go through, you know, anything that Walt Roy would have on this kind of stuff, their earliest ledgers. And since it's materials-based, so we need to find where they were buying the ink and buying the celluloid and that kind of thing. And then I'll need everything you have on the women and ink and paint. So I had boxes to go through on the films, and stacks of ledgers from the very beginning of the company. And he came out with a folder, and I will never forget his face. And he looked at me and said, this is all we have on the women in ink and paint. And it was a folder that had five pieces of paper in it. So we took a deep breath and I said, okay, I get this. So let's think peripherally. Let's think differently on how we're doing this. So we, we started through the ledgers, created a listing. They created a list for me of what appeared to be the various vendors where you know Roy was notating where they were purchasing their various expenses. And so then we went through, I said, okay, bingo, this has got to be where they were getting their cellular. Let's see if there's anything there. So they went back to the files and then went in and boom, up popped under this vendor's name. There were a couple of thick folders that had Hazel Sewell's correspondence about, get us everything you have. We're trying to do something that's never been done before. You sent us, we're calibrated our paints for blue cast and you sent us pink cast celluloid. This will not work. Our latest shipment was scratched. So then you start to learn, okay. So it it just took, and so then over the course of the years that I was researching and writing, um, the guys would pull out, and women, uh, would pull out, I'd get emails around, well, hey, Mindy, we were researching something else, so we found this memo. This could be interesting. Okay, great. And it was a memo talking about the in-between department and how uh, Walt wants you to watch, reprimanding the, men for, you know, what wants you to watch your language. So this is a comfortable place for the women. Uh, you know, just things like that that would show up or suddenly you'd find, you know, and I'd be going through private collections as well and I'd have families hand me bankers boxes and I'd be digging under beds and into people's closets and, you know, please, please tell her mother's story, tell her grandmother's story. And so you'd go through somebody's journal and you'd be reading their love letters and they'd be talking about, Oh, we just finished working on the, you know, the country cousin and I haven't slept in four days and I, I come home and I, you know, but it's going to be a cute cartoon and you're like, oh my gosh, that's awesome. 
it's, it was because I'd set several parameters for myself with this, that it should be, I wanted it in as many firsthand accounts as possible because there would be at that time. Now we have an understanding of it because of the book and the work done. But prior to that, Daniel, I can't tell you how many times I'd have people say to me when I go, yeah, did you know that they created their own pain lab? No, women wouldn't do that. No, no, it was all men. I'm like, okay, I'm going to have to walk in with firsthand accounts because they're not going to take my word for it and people will poo-poo it and it'll get lambasted and laughed out. So it is. that's why it is so extensive, told in as many firsthand accounts as possible and identifying as many of these women as possible so we could humanize them and give their stories light, not me coming through and interpreting. And sadly, I think a lot of people who are attempting to do this and are attributing things. And so they're making, you know, their claims as rather than the claims of the people who did them. You know, and the other thing is this volume sort of rendered many of our, my dear colleagues' books as kind of only half the story, rather obsolete. So where something was supposed to be the complete definitive story of, I would go straight to the index uh, just on anything out there and start looking for any of the female names and you'd get the voice characters or maybe live action reference. And the only other, you that you get the same five women, Lillian and Edna Disney, and it was always because they were the wives and not, not a mention of their actual work and how they kept that little studio going. How much did the women in Walt's personal life contribute to the to the artistic output of the studio itself? Obviously, there would have been an enormous emotional contribution they made to Walt himself, but, you know, Lillian was with Walt from the very beginning. What influence was she having on the artistic output of the studio in its early days? It was all hands on deck in many ways. So everybody was filling in cells and blackening in at that point. That's why purposefully it became clear I needed to to put in that Women of Walt's World section as I was breaking the book down because, I mean, certainly his imagination was fostered by his mother and his grandmother and several teachers were so, had huge impact on him. He kept and maintained some really great relationships. He really, I think in many ways, and um, his great niece and his daughter and grandchildren have speculated and affirmed that he enjoyed the, the company of women in many ways. And, uh, you know, it kind of took great pride in, you know, feigning being henpecked by all his women, but he loved that, you know, and, and he sought that out. He wasn't certainly not henpecked at all, but he sought out their company and their advice and their input. The first employee of the company is a woman and she came to the studio, Kathleen Dollard, as a friend of, it was actually Hazel Sewell that Walt knew first out of the Sewell, Lillian's family. Hazel was Lillian's oldest sister, and she got married and had a, a baby, Marjorie, and, and, you know, it's kind of what you had to do in many ways to get out of small towns. <laughs> and Glenn, her husband at the time, was uh, uh, had his skills or training in uh, pharmacy, and so they made the move here to Los Angeles and, and L.A. at that point in the late 19-teens and early 20s was burgeoning. It was this blossoming, bustling town of, of movies. 
And the kind of place where you would see signs up at, you know, for people want, trying to rent rooms and, you know, no pets or actors allowed. So it was very rambunctious in this town. And, and where Walt's uncle lived, Uncle Robert, was right in the hotbed, right in the heart. There were at least five or six studios within walking distance. But we forget that Kansas City, where he started and started his first small studio, was also a major hub for the film industry, this burgeoning industry. And Hollywood, because you had sunshine virtually every day of the year, really sort of carved its niche and and established itself because it had originally began in New York and and then Portly, New Jersey, and but Kansas City, Chicago. um, There were other areas in the Midwest as well that were big entities for film and animation. So Walt, just the kismet of his life was in one of the the big areas where there was talent there working as he did in Kansas City and then starting his own little company and there was enough to keep that going but then eventually that yeah that failed and there were women there helping him to make that happen so it wasn't just simply that women were filling the traditional roles that one would assume women were fulfilling of you know secretarial work or administrative work but he did have women working as artists at the studio from the very, from the very, very beginning. Yeah. In, in Kansas City, um, in his uh, Laughagram studios, he had Aletha Reynolds working there as an artist. When he was in Chicago, he had studied briefly there, uh, studied art, and met a couple of women artists that he brought out later on to Disney Studios uh, when he had got his little studio established, Mary Weiser being one of those who started the paint labs. Again, he wasn't worried about hanging with the boys. The industries that he started with, it was talent. And again, as I said, history, sadly, has always been recorded, written about, observed, and preserved, and and retold from a male perspective. And women just are not woven into the texture of it. But they've been there, and they get overlooked and invisible. So that was has been my goal to change. And starting with the world of animation, it is now continuing well beyond Disney. One thing that really struck me in from your book is the thing of, you know, it's kind of absurd that women's roles within Disney animation have had had been had disappeared from the narrative because it's that work of women that we are seeing in the final stages on the screen. It's not it's you know, yes, a man a male artist probably was the animator that sketched on the page what you know the actions of a character but it was most likely a female artist sitting down with ink and paint and putting it onto celluloid and their work is the work that we're seeing what you're seeing the other thing that was really key to this particular book that became very apparent early on is the artistry and the level of artistry that was required for this so that's one of the many myths i'm happy to be busting here is that it wasn't just coloring by number and pretty girls who traced and colored uh, because it, it these women were artists in their own right. I can't tell you the level of fine artistry that I've been collecting and gathering of their work to help illustrate that. But when you look at the animated drawings, the animator, yes, is exploring movements and ideas. And these women had to come along and not only retain that, 
but give it a new level of refinement. You see the exploration going on and you have multiple in-betweeners in between there trying to make the lines reach and match. And so they're oftentimes making up for that. And every line these women did, the calligraphic brilliance is mind-blowing. Every line had to be tapered in and tapered out. And they had to have the same life and arc beyond what you would get with a pencil, which, yes, pencils have erasers. These women had to do it in one felt swoop. You couldn't stop and break that line. And you couldn't go, oh, no, wait, that isn't right. I'm going to change it all over again. They had to get that down in one stroke and one masterful calligraphic stroke. And they did. And even when you look at the painting aspect of it, that had its own technique as well. And the use of an application of color. Think about this. Color, when they started on flowers and trees, Hazel Sewell was the force behind that. Had never been done in three-strip Technicolor animation. They worked with 80 shades of color that they bought off the local hardware store shelf for paint that you would use to paint your house or your piece of furniture. That was not, you know, and they had to try to blend it and grind it to refine it to be able to blend together to achieve the palette that they needed. Then you have to take these and apply it to nitrate cellulose, which is its own literally volatile kind of material. But then you also have to cast it through, what, 1600 Kelvin of light. When you think you're going to put on a nice, cheery, bright orange to show fire, it's going to get washed out. So you've got to go with the deeper. So they had to really feel their way to see how these colors we're going to play on screen. And and for that short in particular, where you have no precedence to know how to do this, there's nothing, no one has ever done this before. And you're halfway through production on it in a completely different form. And now you're having to reinvent an art form as quickly as possible. It's insane that they pulled that off. Hazel really and her teams, uh, she's the one who said, because they're, to correct another myth, there were men and women who were early blackeners and tracers and opaquers early on. But the men were not as good at it because it had to be exacting. It had to be specific and tight. Otherwise, it would pop and, and flutter and be distracting. And that would not work for a Disney product. Hazel's the one who said the women are better. We're going to, you know, thank you, but the women are better. She made it an all-female team. You had other studios, Fleischer and others, Sullivan. It was men and women doing it, but it was an inferior visual experience compared to what Disney was with what they were doing. But Hazel also divided the art forms into inking and painting and then moved into the first three-strip Technicolor short. Now, that film took the first Oscar for animation ever, but it wasn't for the animation so much because when you look at what preceded it, there really wasn't anything new or clever or different in terms of character or character design or movement or flow or novelty or expression or anything. It was color. That was Hazel and her teams, and they are beautifully photographed in that book, which told me when I found that photo, and it took a while to unearth a lot of these, that Walt was careful about acknowledging their work as well. But, you know, it was all about a man and what a man is doing. And yes, their work is great. We love them. But they had pencil erasers and had other teams of people. And the women whose artistry 
we see in the final form, we've always looked past. And that to me has been baffling. I, I just could never understand that. Particularly when you look at, because one of the films I was researching most recently was Sleeping Beauty. And you it's kind of like, you can't look at Sleeping Beauty and not think that, you know, that's the ultimate expression of inking and painting as an art form that is completely in some way separate to what it was the animators are doing. Like the inking in that film is absolutely magnificent. And the film would not be magnificent if it wasn't for the, for that. And the color, the color. I mean, that, you know, Ivan Earl, yes, was as art director, had a really distinct vision. Um, but being able to realize that vision through color was, and the artistry, he did a lot of training in terms of the style of the trees and the form and, and that kind of thing. You know, Thelma Whitmer's back backgrounds on that film. You have so there were so many women animators on that film. It's mind blowing. And yet, when you look at the the example I have in the book of of Aurora and her lines, uh, some of the ladies told me that you know you would you could spend a day working on one drawing because everything had to lock in. Her eyes, especially, had to lock in. And be exact, and if you know, you had to take it back and and retool it again if it wasn't spot on. Yeah, it is the zenith of hand rendered inking, of the hand inking, and and you have premium premium inkers. Many of the ladies shared that you know you really didn't become a premium inker after many years, and even then you start to understand. Oh, now I get what I'm doing and why and. And I've talked to many of them and go, could you still link today? Well, yeah, I could still be able to pen, but I'd, I'd need to get my strokes up. I'd have to, it is such an art form that you know, many went off and did other types of art. Inking as its own art form is just, when you see examples, and that's the other thing too, when you, when you see cells, often many are available on the market, they're masterful, but what was more, even more unique to find or just strictly the inking examples. And in some of the families, they say, well, yeah, these wouldn't have been used. But I said, no, no, these were crucial because they're rare, they're hard to find, because they were the studies. They were the examples of, of these women working to keep their hand in what they were doing. I have a couple of really stunning uh, fairy pieces that I, I have when I'm speaking in my presentations I put them up and I just linger on them because when you see the exacting detail, uh, they're simple, elegant forms. But when you see the detail, the simplicity of it, there's such an intricacy and a masterful sense to those lines. You cannot not appreciate what these women were doing as artists. And uh, that was a really big myth I was anxious to and delighted to be able to dispel because we never hear about that. But yet it's, it was a whole additional level. to It's sort of the difference between a blueprint and the final form. So it, it's been a, a deep honor and joy to, to get that properly contextualized so people begin to understand and to see our beloved animated classics in an entirely different light. When you look at the color and the detail and the style and form and finesse of what was accomplished, and when you look at the animation drawings, they are, they're masterful, they're brilliant. 
but there's another level to it. And sadly, we don't have as many strong examples of their completed work because a lot of it was washed off and went down the drain or the paint flaked off or, you know, but when you see the, the colors, the rich palette of colors, Disney, Mary Weiser and her teams in that paint lab, uh, as I mentioned in Flowers and Trees, there were 80 shades of color of paint that they bought commercially off the shelves. But there were so many problems and it was persistently uh, creating delays and, and you know, colors wouldn't hold suspension that they tried to blend and achieve between different manufacturers. And so it was Mary Weiser who said, we can do better and went and got her degree in chemistry and uh, established the first and only paint lab creating paints exclusively for cell animation. That was the only studio that had their own paint lab specifically for their own purposes. I didn't know that. Everybody else was using what was called cartoon color later in the 40s. Others were were using commercial paints. Uh, those who had worked in the two-strip uh, Biworks and others at that time worked with the two-strip Technicolor, but they were buying commercial paints just as Disney was initially. But in 30, 35 to 36, Mary develops the paint lab and you go from 19... Uh, 32 Flowers and Trees to 1937 with the Old Mill. And you have over 1,500 shades of custom-made and designed colors in their own paint lab. And by the time you get to certainly Sleeping Beauty and you get to, it's in the 50s roughly, um, there were over 26, 2,800 shades of color that were uh, being created at the Disney Labs, more color than what was commercially available. And you also have the development of new colors, new uh, minerals and items that could come together to give you new colors that were developed into the 30s and 40s. And every film had its own color palette. So you'd, you'd have to, when you think about, for example, in, well, let's use Sleeping Beauty as an example, Maleficent, she has her iconic, you know, purple to her robes and the blacks and the green to her. But if she's going to walk into a cave, you know, when she's in the castle and she's walking down into the dungeon, she walks past shadows. So you've got to have bright daylight and then shadow color tones as well. Those aren't, it isn't a lighting trick. It's a paint trick. Yes. A human, a human hand created that. Yeah. And so you have to mix those colors to blend. Jiminy Cricket had so many details in his little form. And the women could get their artistry down to half an inch before they'd lose any detail. So you think that tiny character, as often as he appears on that screen, he's less than you know quarter of an inch half the time on these little cells. I have a cell that was given to me uh, of, it has the tiniest little hint of this translucent form in the corner. And it's a set of Tinkerbell's wings, which were on a separate cell level. And so you're also working on multiple cell levels. So you've got, um, you might, you would need then, each cell has a color cast to it. And so the paints would have to be calibrated to accommodate that color cast. So if you're layering two cells, three cells, four cells on top of each other, you're now darkening what's going to appear on the bottom level. And it has to match if you're doing different types of, you know, localized animation or if something's limited where you've just got an arm moving for a sequence or two. 
to, but you need it to match with the other flesh tone of the rest of the body, but it's on a different cell level. So you have snow white, blue one, snow white, blue two, snow white, blue three, snow white, blue four. So you have this rubric of color that you have to then design and work within to ensure that the final scene, once it's under camera and locked and on screen, you're not going, wow, why is that arm darker than the other one? So there's, this was why it was clear that the minute the, the drawings were done, dare I say, none of my male colleagues wanted to explore it <laughs> because it was such a mind meld of how do we convey this? How do we do this? What's the trick with this? How do we master this? Because I guess in, in, a, in a way, it's the point where art turns to science, I guess, which is, you know, something that I know a lot of, a lot of artists find. Like I remember once describing directing as kind of like mathematics, that it's kind of like this plus this divided by this times this equals this. Like, and I remember describing that in a class once and my classmates were horrified at the idea that you, they were like, I can't handle you combining mathematics with art. And I mean, that's the thing with animation is that as much as there are, of course, there, might, there are technical sides to it, there's it something kind of romantic and, dare I say it, sexy about, you know, the pure, like this idea of like pure artistic expression with like, you know, a pencil on a piece of paper. But the process of color and inking and painting, there is such a scientific exactness that has to come with that, which is breathtaking and experimentation. It's maybe the blending of artistry and technology. Yes, totally. So, yeah, there would be mathematics, of course, too. Um, Gretchen Albrecht, who was uh, one of the last to run the department in its traditional way and made the transition into CAPS, she had studied mathematics, and, and but yet also art. And so it was very clear to me that, boy, you were perfectly placed in, in what you're doing and when you were there and how you did it. Because... They would have to have quotas and they'd have to get so much done each day and with each particular production. And uh, But that would kind of kill the artistry because you, you have the various, like the dry brush techniques that had to be accomplished, the different solutions that they would have to work with, the shadows. The labs continued to create these pieces and they created so many solved so many problems for special effects and visual effects not only in animation but in some of the live action as well and just some of the level of artistry that had to be done was so unique and yet at every point there was it was art first and then technology applied to create the magic of what was being done and and a really remarkable team of of personnel and the fact that they weren't the turnover wasn't, you saw people who worked there for 30 years, 20 years, 15 years, who would get called back. And, and there was a point they thought animation was going to die out when Walt died and theme parks and television had picked up and the studio thought, well, why are we spending all this money when we can, in a matter of months, do a live action film and get instant turnaround? But it was when on Pete's Dragon, there was a transition where they, Elliot was supposed to be visual effects, like, you know, Elliot, watch your tail, and then a gust of wind and leaves would blow. So it would appear like that was his tail knocking something over. And then they realized, you know, what if we were to do this as an animated character? We've, you know, Disney has done this before, combining live action with animation. Let's see if that'll work. Well, it was the right idea, and it they turned it on a dime, but they did not have the trained artists within ink and paint on hand. There were a few of the animators had moved on to 
Imagineering. So they were still around. Ken Anderson was there to lead a lot of that. But it was problematic because they had just a small staff. They were doing very small commercial work and some of the shorts and things at the time, but they hadn't done a feature in a while. So they had to call back these women. You couldn't, there wasn't time to train people and they would not be at the level for a feature quality production. They called up Becky Falberg, got into her Rolodex and dialed up women who were in their 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s who had worked on Snow White and Fantasia and, and Bambi in the earlier films. And they came back on a lark and helped to finish that film. And then many stayed on and had second careers after they'd raised their kids. But it was, again, another testament to the level of artistry these women contributed. And it, it wasn't stamped out, even with Xerox, it still, there was a level of artistry that had to be completed. And what were the working conditions and opportunities offered to women, like particularly from the period from, from the 30s through to the, to the start of the 60s? What, what was it like for a woman to work at Walt Disney Productions in any capacity, in any department? Well, uh, many of them echoed that, you know, you felt like you won the lottery because particularly in the 30s, it was depression era. And you have to remember, too, for women, um, there were very limited opportunities for any kind of work. You could, maybe if you were academically inclined, you could teach, but that was still very unusual for a woman in the 30s. You were expected to get married and have babies. That was your main thing. Um, If you studied anything, um, you know, it was all about who you were going to marry, and then you'd be raising your family. Uh, so to pursue any kind of a career, this was a big deal. And you, you suddenly had a generation that thought, wait, I want to, you know, I've studied this. I'm good at it. I want to do this. For women stepping into it who had studied art and were particularly good at art, this was a big opportunity. They had to go through training. They had to uh, come in with a portfolio. They did not just pick people up off the street. You had to show you you had the capability, and and they were there were cuts. Even if you'd gone through the training, they might train twenty people, and maybe two or three would make the cut. It was very very high end. You and there's new discoveries now that women were making a very good wage. You could rent an apartment, a two bed, lovely two bedroom apartment, for uh, fifteen bucks a month. And if you were a good uh, at painter, you were making 13 bucks a week. Oh, that's amazing. Right. You could, you know, a can of beans was five cents. You know, when you put it into context and you come to understand, because there were these other myths about, oh, they paid them just cheap wages. And I've just unearthed one collection where uh, they later married, but the father, the husband, was an in-betweener at Disney and the mother, the wife was uh, an inker, premium inker. She was making more than he was. Disney at that time was sort of the going place. It, it also had the reputation of the country club. They joke and call it the country club because it, Walt was really insistent about comfortable, safe, clean environments where they had good lighting. They would take their tea breaks because he knew it was sedentary, they you know baseball games, softball games going at lunch hour, and you know so he sort of was taking the holistic approach as an artist that you know you needed to and bring in the classes and they'd screen the work of other studios to learn from as far as what not to do, and for the women 
when you you look at photographs and you see the work, there were at that time Walt was attracted against industry levels where women were moving within industry. They had very limited opportunities. Uh, you had other pink ghettos such as like telephone operators or secretarial work and then teaching at that point, but that was about it. And if you go even earlier in, in U.S. history, well, it was even less and not very safe kind of places where women would be working. But Walt was always ahead of where, so the country in the U.S. might be at maybe 17% women in industries. Walt would be at 20% or 23% or something, or it would move to then by five more years, then women would be at 25% and Walt would be at 30. He was always, the number of women working, he was always ahead of those national numbers of industry. And it isn't until the 40s where you see women overall in major industries with the Rosie the Riveters and other areas where the numbers really jump because of World War II. Uh, And that's also true of Disney, but not as much because women had always been working. As I said, the first employee of the company was a woman. To ask a slightly, probably quite complicated question. So one of the other things that you read constantly about in in, in Disney histories is the is the separation of men and women. You know, men worked in animation, women worked in inking and painting. Because I know that you know, it, you know, with with Retta Scott with Bambi, she was one of the first women to to become an active participant in the animation department. What was the reasoning of believing that women were not capable of achieving what men could achieve in animation? Why was animate why was animation thought of as being a bit more of a boys club? Well, there are a number of things behind that and I, that was another myth I wanted to get to the bottom of. And when you look at places like Fleischer Studios, uh, there were women animating in the early 30s um, and in between it was a woman running the in between department and I've unearthing quite a bit um, of independent artists, women working independently uh, in animation, sort of artisanal animation. When it comes to the studios, Walt is on record. It's the 1930s. Uh, it's a very different mindset. When you, when you come to understand that women got the right to vote in the United States in 1920, after decades of fighting for this. And so when Walt started his studio in 23, you know, women were, it was still fresh. It was still new, but he was of a mindset that, okay, great. (laughs) You know, he didn't see the limitations on women, but in the early 1930s, and you do have depression and other things, he is on record as saying, I don't know why. And it's not him being snarky or anything. He's really questioning this going, I don't get it. You know, women just don't seem to have the power it takes to do this. And that's stated all across the boards. When you look at various articles and books of the day that come out about women don't have the power to do it. Do you recognize, though, that animation at that point was just a lot of physical comedy? We're just coming out of the silent era where it's all visual and we're moving into sound. And now we've got to delight to our audiences in other ways. We can open it up with music and score and so many other things. And physical comedy, pratfalls, sight gags, that would be power, right? Um, And so, and as they're figuring this industry out and pushing new boundaries in it, it was a man's world. 
And men worked and women stayed home with the children. So it was a big deal that women were even in industry at all. And But Walt then realizes, literally within, at about the same time, you start to see some of these articles where he's on record as saying, I don't know why, but he brings in Bianca Majoli and Grace Huntington and other women and Dorothy Ann Blank in terms of story. And he begins to recognize, wait a minute, there's more we can do here. And you can see his, he's working to shift the industry in terms of story and narrative and ideas. And uh, another colleague had unearthed some story write-ups. They were passing around kind of a story Bible that had this whole listing of different gags and ideas. And Walt would go to everybody and they could submit their ideas. Even Ruthie Thompson, who's still with us, she's on that list. She was pitching story ideas and you'd get paid. You know, if you if you came up with a funny gag, you got paid five bucks, which was a lot of money that made it to screen. So he, you know, he wasn't looking for just the guys to tell the stories. He was looking, everybody, everybody's got great ideas. And he knew women made the financial choices on what movies that were seen and what they were doing. So he brought these women in to it, to really work and explore and expand story. And when you see Bianca Mojali's artwork, it's just gorgeous, delicate. It's beautiful work. And her sensibilities were a key part of what led us to feature-length animation. Dorothy Ann Blank did some of the most pivotal and foundational work. In fact, many of her tenants and approaches of how she was breaking down scripts and story ideas to be explored for films are still utilized today. You know, he wasn't casting it off to the men with the pencils that have erasers. It was, he was placing it in the hands of people with discernment and quality and taste and bringing a different sensibility. Uh, He recognized he needed pathos. And let's even take this even further back to Mildred or to Margaret Winkler when he first started and got his contract, she's the one who gave him the go and financed his first cartoons. When you look at their correspondence, she's training him. She knows exactly what's needed. She was a powerhouse and we owe everything about getting that studio started to Margaret Winkler. And sadly, she gets lambasted and belittled or is even written out of most histories about animation or gets one sentence. And yet she's the one who put animation on the map and kept it and established it as a main part of the movie-going experience. It's like the histories are far more interested in the ways that her husband mistreated Disney as opposed to the ways that she create, helped create Disney. So to ask another very complicated, possibly slightly loaded question, why do you think it is in talking about Disney history, we've kind of, because one of the things you talk about in the book is the idea that we've the previous histories have kind of just decided on a small subset of women that they only ever talk about. There's Mary Blair, Retta Scott, Margaret Winkler, Lillian herself. Why do you think it is? Because it's one thing that's become that's been really surprising and exciting, both from working, you know, looking at your book for research on this for this podcast, but also other texts that from the influence of the research that you've done have started to talk more about artists like Sylvia Holland and and and, and women and other women like that. Why do you think it was that they only chose that subset of women and focused only on them? Well, they were the only ones showing up in the credits at one point. Yes, yes <laughs> very true. But, you know, Dorothy Ann Blank is there, so is Hazel Sewell, and nobody paid a lick of attention. Oh, it was Lillian's sister. Yeah, I'm sure it was just a... There's there's a tendency to be little. I mean, look even politically where we are. 
<laughs> you know, come on, seriously. And there's, there is this in kind of unconscious bias about if a woman is doing it, it must somehow be less than, and that has to change. We have to change this. And that's why, you know, when I called my editor, I had to do a little sort of educating there to say, look, what these women accomplished, we'd, we'd had a, another editor, oh, the book is too long. And I'm like, oh, believe me, we're still just scratching the surface. She said, we could bring another editor in, or if you want to do it. And I said, well, let's do both because I'm curious to see what that view would be. And it was a woman and she came in and was tasked with, okay, you have to chop, you know, we got to cut this a bit. And, and so she went through and as a woman, I was kind of stunned, but it was, she kept going through any, anything technological, xerography. Oh, all of it gone. Women weren't there. And I'm like, uh, yeah, they were. Just anything with the paint labs. No, two techno, no women weren't there. <laughs> and I, I'm reading through her edits and I went, oh dear, here we go. And so I, we had a conference call and I had to sort of explain this is the unconscious bias we have to work against. Even you have been raised as a woman to think that if it was technical, no, women had nothing to do with it. Or women weren't there because they, we also have bought into the myths, the legends, the stories that are out there. You have to sort of, as I try to train, I've had interns and others working with me and I'm, Anytime we're going through a collection, I'm like, you can't go in. You have to check your biases at the door and let the story come out. And it's great working with younger, my students at CalArts to, to get them to think differently. And usually when I'm out speaking, I'll, I'll start with, I'm about to change what you think you know about our animated past because it, it calls. I have to get people to go, oh wait a minute, I'm going to have to think differently here and then show them why and, and put it right out there in front of them. And all ages, I get all ages, women in their 80s have come up to me. I went, I had no idea I was thinking this biased. How much is the, it, from, from the past, how much is the company's shaping of their narrative? How much of that influenced the bias, I guess, is my question. Like how much has the previous narrative that Disney has spun of itself influenced our bias of believing that women played a lesser role in the, in the company, in the art form. I, I would maybe rethink that because it wasn't their doing necessarily <laughs> because you have a lot of other independent writers who've come along and went, yep, this is how it was done. And here's kind of buying into these myths and not doing the legwork of well, let's really see if that's the case. And, oh, look at what's here. There were women and women from the beginning and women who did, and not giving credence to that. I mean, I, as a woman, I can't tell you, for the bulk of my career, I've been overlooked and undervalued and, and invisible and, you know, oh, you're, here. oh, okay. You know, just not, and it, it becomes... Like, really? Seriously? Okay, enough. And I think, and I kept telling my editor at the time, it's been out for a few years now, now we're hopefully on the other side of this where people are more woke to what needs to change. 
And I'm grateful to have been a big part of that. But I said, look, this is, we have to shift this. This is going to be in the zeitgeist and we have to get this in and out and be part of the charge to demonstrate where the change, how different this is. Now my research is expanding into uh, the history of other underrepresented groups. And again, Disney was a leader in diversity at a time when others weren't. Which I don't think a lot of people realize about the studio because the assumption would be that I think there's a certain degree to which we look at Disney through the lens of Disney now as being this giant corporation, this mass, like hugely influential company. Um, we don't, we think of it as almost like a machine. That has not always been the case. At some point, they were an independent company struggling and trying to do the best they possibly could. To ask a very specific question, um, to the point where this episode is releasing in the wider narrative of this podcast is the transition point between Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians. And I did just want to ask, what was the experience for women at Disney in the process, the transition process between Sleeping Beauty and, and Dalmatians? Both the Xerox process, but also the layoffs that happened as a result of Sleeping Beauty's commercial failure. Well, there's a little bit of a myth there too. Sleeping Beauty, yeah, it it did, it was costly. It was six years or more in production on that film. Um, many of the ladies who are still with us who uh, animated and or inked and painted on it, keep in mind inkers and painters were working on everything. So if there was animation coming down in shorts and uh, projects for the parks and whatever, they were very, very busy. But the animators were really, it, certainly there was disappointment. And uh, as animators, there were a lot of layoffs because it, uh, Jane Bear and others have said that it was her first job. She was a student at Art School Art Center here in Los Angeles, and she ran out of money and needed to get a job. And, oh, Disney's hiring. Okay. So she went over and got hired. And she's like, yeah, now, can you imagine? That was my first job, but we were all young and and it was so great because they were all, it was a new generation coming in at that point. And artists who had come from, you couldn't train in animation. There were no schools specifically. Cal, uh, Chenard had a few classes but uh, at that point, but uh, it was a tough school to get into. And you had to get your training really at the studio. Jane had studied illustration and advertising art and got brought her portfolio over and got hired right away. Liz Case Wicker had been a fine artist and did trained as a fine artist and did wildlife work. Well, there were animals and forest characters and creatures. So she got hired right away and was doing a, a lot, just beautiful work on the film. Um, and that was the case for many of the others. Um, and uh, you have Floyd Norman coming in at that point. He was in betweening on the fairies. He was on the fairy unit for that film. And uh, so it was a real Stan Chen. It was a very diverse group and they were all very young and eager and learning from, I mean, Jane worked with Frank and, and Frank Thomas and Ollie and Mark and Eric Larson was around and uh, so worked with a number of the nine old men on that film. And she had a, did assistant work on Princess Aurora with Mark and Frank asked her to come in and work on the candles going down the cake. Would you want to try this? She's like, okay. So, uh, you know, training with them. Then she later came back and was um, Milt Call's assistant on The Rescuers working on Medusa and her favorite character. <laughs> and uh, But 
at the time with Sleeping Beauty, she said, you know, this was all we knew. This was our first job. We were at the best place in the industry. We didn't know any different. And then as we also didn't know that when a production ends, you lose your job. And we didn't know that you're going to get hired back somewhere. You find work elsewhere and kind of as an itinerant job in a way. So she said there were tears. And uh, so in animation, yes, there were layoffs, but that was a typical thing. That was a standard thing in the industry at that point. That came about pretty much uh, in the 50s, uh, post-war, post-war era, post-strike, actually, but post-war. And then for ink and paint, there is this myth that, oh, they fired all the inkers and laid them all off. And no, they did not. The, the women of inking were given the first opportunity. Eleanor Dolan, she's in the book. Uh, she was the first to be asked to uh, be shown the Xerox machine uh, that Ub had developed for the studio. And the original rooms, it's three rooms, are still there at the studio. So she was, uh, she and a small group of a handful of the premium inkers were brought in to be shown the process and how this would work. And they were granted the first opportunity to be trained and have those jobs. And anyone who did not want to do it. Now, Eleanor had said, look, I, you know, she, it was difficult for her because she had, it was her first job. She had trained as an inker and was a premium inker. She's just beautiful work. And she said, look, you know, this felt more like you were a team and it was more felt like factory because you were camera operating and working with machinery. She said, I've trained as an artist here and I want to continue to do this. So they said, okay. So they were not laid off. If they were given that first choice of a job, you have people like Carmen Sanderson and others who went, okay, I'll take it. Great. And kept working at the studio to stay at Disney. But Eleanor, um, Grace Bailey at the time was the head of the department. She pulled out a Rolodex and found work for anyone who did not want to continue working in Xerox. Yeah, why do you think people assumed that the Xerox process meant people lost their jobs? Just, you know, well, yeah, they laid it off. And, and for whatever reason, people want to create that big, bad company tone. and. I would have loved to have worked at the studio under Walt. Uh, you know, everybody talked about that it was a family feeling. It certainly wasn't a fit for everyone. Just as working in a corporate setting today is not a fit for everyone or working independently or free with freelance is not a fit for everyone. Um, and there are always going to be people who are not always happy and they'll find whatever reason they can to be negative and complain and, Look for the downside. Oh, yeah, the big, ugly corporation laid them all off and got rid of them. And I had heard those stories too orally. And then you start reading them in books because people were vying on, oh, yeah, I heard that. And they worked at Disney, so it must be the case. The reality is when I asked over and over again, and so were you laid off? No. Grace pulled out her rope. She found me a job and I worked at another studio. I thought it was the end of the earth, but I got another job and I kept going and and she then came back and was inking on other films later on. With 
the, the the process of researching the book and speaking to the women who were still with us or were with were still with us at the time you were researching the book. What was the general sense of how they looked back on their time at Disney? Like what? Like when they spoke about it? What, like you know how did yeah, how did they speak about it? What was the sense of their their memories of it? Well, it would take a while to get them thinking about it and talking a little bit. I, one terrific example of that is uh, dear Wilma Baker when I found out there was someone who was still around who had worked on Snow White. I was like, get me now to her. And before I even had my contract in place for the book, I I told my editor, look, great. You keep working on that. We got the green light. Let's go. I have to move. Ruthie Thompson is about to turn 101. And she's still with us at 110. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So I bolted and got over to her right away and um and she had been she had done other interviews because she's so unique within the history of the company but we talked quite a bit about the ink and paint you know her experiences and what she did and some of the early women and she was just invaluable with that but then when I found out about Wilma I was like what so got a hold of her she was living down in along the coast and I said well I'd love to meet with you I'd love to sit down and talk with you well I don't know what I have to tell about I, you know, I just painted. I, you know, I can't probably talk. I said, well, you know what? Why don't I just come down? I, I think it, it'll be fine. And so she had, had never had anything like this because, again, as women, they were working invisibly, and there are reasons why because because it was the final work on the films, the place had to be pristine. You, you know, any boulder fingerprints, anything dust would show up like a a boulder on the screen. So a speck of dirt or dust was a a no-no. So Hazel determined that the women were better, so she divided her teams. But then they realized, woo, we're getting a lot of schmutz on these things. we got to get the environment cleaned out. So when they built the, in 35, they built the ink and paint uh, building over, inking and painting building over in Hyperion, which is now a Gelson's grocery store. So when you go to the uh, frozen food and uh, to-go area. <laughs> That's where the ink and paint rooms are. Do you do, do you go in there and just walk around to customers like, do you aware that Snow White and the Seven Dwarves was made in this in this room that women sat here no, and painted? No, I don't do that. But... One of the great works of 20th century art in this room. Did they have a plaque that hangs up there and they're aware of it? But I, I'll go in there once in a while and I'll just kind of meander and soak it up. Uh, but it became clear that all right, we need to eliminate traffic through here and they were quiet rooms it wasn't like a rambunctious place it was quiet you were working on your doing your paintings and that's when it was sort of off limits for the guys to you couldn't go parading through because there was work being done there and you needed to keep it pristine and if people were traipsing in and out you're dragging in dust and other unwanted elements so that's when they kind of said it's off limits and they were you know, that's where they called them. It was the nunnery and the monastery and Tehachapi and, you know, calling, just referring to the fact that you couldn't, it was verboten that these two lands shouldn't meet. But it was largely because this was the last work being done before it would go to camera and you needed to keep that pristine. So that's where once they were kind of behind those locked doors in a way, not locked, but verboten doors, that's where the, a lot of these myths came about and where their work was then invisible because then magically you would it would leave the desk with the pencil drawings and it would show up on a screen and they had no understanding of what it took to get it to that final 
point. So when I was meeting with Wilma, uh, we sat, I got down there and it was six and a half hours. And I, I pointed out to her, I said, and you didn't think you had anything to talk about. <laughs> and we got to talking and, and she had worked, uh, she noticed about her life and she had been at the studio for many, many years. She left after Pinocchio and Fantasia and then got married and, and was pregnant and had her son. But her husband never met her son. She was pregnant and he was drafted in the war. And even in, at the sweet age of 97, I think at that point, she was, still was too much for her to talk about, about you know, losing her husband in the war. So she was. This, she called the studio and said, uh, "You know, I, I, do you need me?" And they're like, "Yes, get back here." And they helped with her to find daycare, and um, she came back to work. And then she met her second husband there. And even her kids were like, "You know, we didn't know this about mom. You know, we were seeing her." In a and she said to me that day, "Well, maybe my children and grandchildren and great grandchildren will." have something to, to understand what I did and something to remember me by. And she wanted to, her wish was to be able to, she goes, I can't wait to hold this book and read it and share it with my grand, great-grandchildren. Well, I, it was a joy. The book wasn't out yet, but at D23, we did a panel event and I had Wilma and Ginny Mack on there. And so we also did autographs. We had little postcards and we signed and they're like, want me to sign they why do they want my head so I had to explain autographs and how we had to do it and I said just sign it if you can put best wishes or whatever you'd like and so it was so precious for these women at their tender ages of 88 97 to get their first autograph session and to be you know on a panel event and and to finally get some credit for what they did and when Wilma passed her family called and they had a, I'm going to get emotional. They had a private burial for her, private service, and I was invited. They buried her with a, one of her paintbrushes in her hands. Uh, they would send cells down to her. She was painting on Oliver and Company and Little Mermaid because she would do it from home. And she would still be doing it, but her eyesight, you know, she was, she was just so good. She showed me her light table. And I, in fact, I have a glove one of her gloves that still had paint on it. <laughs> it's like, Wilma, you've got to sign this. <laughs> How important are the stories and the experiences and the work of women at Disney during the 30s and 40s and 50s, during that the Golden Age and the Silver Age? How important are those stories of those women to inspiring new women, the new generation of women, to, to come to animation? How, like how much has, have their stories inspired the women that have taken up the mantle from them and are now leaders in the world of animation? Oh, it's vital. Well, you know, those who are, are working in animation today didn't even know these stories. And many of them felt, oh, I'm having, the way. And I had to sort of shatter a few illusions along the way that, oh, there were effects artists and background artists and <laughs> Thelma Whitmer was not our first background artist. There were a dozen women and women were animating earlier. And so it's, it has shifted a lot of things for people, but it has really empowered even women who have been working in this industry, who started their careers in the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, who felt like, you know, they were having to do the heavy lifting of, you know, or, you know, 
we're the first and we got to change this. And it's really helped shift the industry to understand overall that, wait a minute, women have been here. We failed to tell their stories and we failed to uh, empower. And and it's, it's also highlighted, sadly, put a spotlight on the need for future generations to see this, to see that women have always been there. When I teach my CalArts class, it's our numbers at CalArts are about 70% women studying animation. The industry is completely inverted in terms of numbers. So there's a, there's a dearth there. We need to change that. It really has empowered and uh, helped men and women understand that, oh, Oh, <laughs> women can, oh, they have done this. They can do this. They should be doing this. They have stories to tell too. And I'm able to, because of this research and this platform and this evidence, solid evidence, to be able to be the voice to say, uh-uh, come on, grow up. Women have a voice and stories and have always been in the room. We're, we don't need to be trained in this. We've been doing it all along. Let us get at it. And they're listening and it's changing. And I'm, I'm deeply humbled and honored to be a big part of casting a light on that need and path to change. And it's, it is changing. That's why I did the, my Pencils, Pens and Brushes volume, which so many of these women's stories were incredible that I just didn't have room in ink and paint, believe it or not. And I wanted to inspire. I kept seeing little seven-year-olds coming to these signings with this massive volume going, oh, we got we to gotta fix this. <laughs> well, to ask one last final question, which is a question I ask every guest on this podcast. It's a very, it's a, it's a tough one. Do you have a favorite Disney animated classic? That is a tough one. <laughs> there are so many. I, I have a newfound respect for each one of these films, even things like Black Cauldron I have a newfound respect for because of the research in it. And, and learning what it took to make these things happen and the changes they were pushing and the technology, the, the boundaries they were trying to move beyond and the horizons they were exploring. Uh, but in terms of sentimental, yes, Mary Poppins has a very sweet, important place in my heart, but the one that gets me the most is, is Cinderella. Oh, <laughs> understandably. It's a magnificent film. And you're not the first person to say that, actually. You're not the first person to cite Cinderella as their favourite. It's such an unexpectedly, uh, disarmingly beautiful film. It always takes me by surprise how beautiful a film that is. Well, Mindy, I could talk to you about this subject for probably days, I imagine. Um, <laughs> Told you it would take you, more than an hour. <laughs> you did, you did. When I said this was an hour, you were very, very right. But I just wanted to say so thank you for taking the time to chat with me about this very important subject, but also to say thank you for all of the work that you've done in bringing the stories of the women of Disney animation to the forefront. I know that it was something I was very conscious of starting this project, that I knew that I was going into a story that was very male-dominated and I really wanted to be able to have a better understanding of the role of women within the art form. And your book has become one of the most invaluable resources I've had for learning more about the, the, this company and this art form and these films. So I also just want to say thank you for your amazing work. Um, and yeah, for the way that you've been shifting our perception of how this art movement happened. Well, thank you, Daniel. I appreciate that. And 
moving forward, you can now change that as well. And as you move forward in all that you're doing, um, be sure to keep it balanced because it, it has always been and should always be that way. Thanks for listening to this in-betweener bonus episode on the women of Disney animation. And also to Mindy Johnson for joining me on this episode. You can find out more about Mindy's work at mindyjohnsoncreative.com. And if you're interested in learning more about how women have contributed to Disney animation, be sure to check out her extraordinary books, Ink and Paint, The Women of Walt Disney's Animation, and Pencils, Pens and Brushes, A Great Girl's Guide to Disney Animation. You can follow Ink and Paint on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Ink Paint Pod for bonus material and news on upcoming episodes. You can also email daniel at inkandpaint.com.au and find me on Twitter at Daniel Lemon. We'll be releasing new in-betweeners as we go along, so make sure to subscribe to Ink and Paint to make sure you don't miss any. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to rate and review and to tell your friends about us. Ink and Paint Inbetweeners are created, hosted, and written by myself, Daniel Lamon, and produced and edited by Alex Amster. Theme music is composed by Sam Porter. The show artwork is designed by Nicholas Pirinakis, and the podcast is released through Switch. MakeTheSwitch.com.au. Join me next time on Ink and Paint to continue our journey through the Disney animated classics. Mm-hmm.